I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Well, Mr. Binks, last week we asked the question, to neuter or not to neuter? This week we're asking, I am dog, therefore I am. Oh, don't look at me like that, Pinksy. I'm only being a bit philosophical. That's because we're about to jump on Zoom to talk to Sam Dodson. He's the author of The Philosopher's Dog, to talk about why the great philosophers over centuries have looked to their dog for the answers. Hey, Sam. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining me on A Dog's Life. I'm very excited about this episode because it's really going to reflect the dog centricities that I promised in my original trail. <laughs> well, absolutely. And th- thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And what a delight it is to be on your lovely podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very, very much. And, and we're here to talk about your book, aren't we? That's called Philosopher's Dogs. Yes, that's right. Now, tell us a bit more. Now, what is the expression for this book? Is it a faux novel? Yeah, I would say it's almost like a faux serious philosophy 101 textbook uh, that reveals a truth that has previously been kept secret, that all human philosophers have actually stolen their ideas from their dogs. Yes, I think it's absolutely genius, you know, absolutely genius. Because, you know, you've got to sort of ask yourself, what is philosophy? Well, absolutely. And I think... Uh, anyone who's ever grown up with dogs like I have will know that you know our, our canine companions are so so full of ideas and uh, interesting thoughts that actually they, they're on almost the best philosophers in so many ways and um, obviously I think when you ask the question what is philosophy there's there's two answers here one is uh, the sort of the stereotypical human one which is that it's about curiosity and a conversation around ideas and finding out how we should behave in the world, what's good, what's bad, uh, what is real. Whereas for dogs, I think we need to remember that the original uh, canine Latin philosophy actually is a, is a mistranslation. It's fur philosophy, uh, which means to think with fur. And I think we could all learn a bit more uh, from our dogs if we just approach things in life by thinking, you know, what would our dogs do in situations. Yes, I, I really agree. Now that's fascinating. So you actually really mean that in Latin philosophy is spelt philosophy. <laughs> no, 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 that's that's a bit being slightly facetious, but um <laughs> I should say that emphasize that the book's slightly satirical. Um but uh, I still I think there's as with all great humor and satire, there is always an element of truth and humor uh, to it. Yes, I know what you mean about humour. <laughs> it's the greatest line of communication. But what's so lovely about this book is the way it's produced. And I've got to say, the illustrations just absolutely bring it to life with their, their detail. And again, of course, the satirical humour. Um, explain about the illustrations. Who did them, Sam? Anna, thanks so much for bringing this up. I've created the book with my sister, Rosie, who is just the most absurdly talented artist I know. And obviously I know I'm biased being her brother, uh, but she and I have always sort of created lots of uh, creative ideas and works together through our life growing up. And uh, yeah, a couple of years ago when I first pitched this idea to her, she just was immediately drawn to it, pun intended. And um, yeah, she and I have just immediately started sketching ideas, thinking what illustrations would perfectly capture a philosopher and their dog. And uh, I, I have to say, you know, you can, you can, your listeners can look at um, 
different illustrations that are available through our book website on Unbound, which are our crowdfunding publisher. And uh, yeah, sort of see for yourselves. But I, I really, I'm really excited to see the book in print, uh, just yeah. so you can see the, the illustrations themselves. Yes, no, they're, they're really fabulous. And the, the ones that have caught my eye um, is Simone de Beauvoir and how you've obviously interpreted uh, a possible, you know, situation in her boudoir that is, is overpowered by dogs. And you've got loads of French poodles, obviously, well, poodles are actually originally from Germany. However, you know, the idea of them being very Parisians, captured there in a very... Um, opulent boudoir environment. I love that one. And of course, you've got the thinker. Explain the illustration of the, the legendary thinker. Yeah, absolutely. So Rosie and I both love sort of subverting traditional images and uh, sort of ideas that we have of sort of high art. But obviously, the, the thinker, the sculpture, uh, sculptor is um, one of the most famous uh, sort of images or iconography attached to philosophy and sort of the, the human uh, ideal, I guess. And uh, we've, we've created it as a St. Bernard in, in place of the, the man at the centre of the, the sculpture. And uh, I think it just works really, really well. It's going to be the um, sort of the front page image almost of the, of the book. And um, there, there's lots of little tidbits like that throughout the book um, where we sort of anthropomorphise sort of human pieces of art into, into doggy form. Yes, absolutely. Did the philosophers listed in, in your book, you know, obviously like Karl Barks and um, indeed, of course, Sigmund Freud, did they actually own dogs, do you know? Great question. So not obviously some of the philosophers that we've talked about are, in the book are like Plato and Socrates and there's just no historical record that they would definitely have had dogs. But some of the, book, some of the philosophers in the books absolutely did did have dogs. In fact, they sort of relied completely almost on their dogs. So Sigmund Freud's a great example of that uh, because he had, uh, he just had an obsession with chow chows, which are obviously just lovely dogs and lots of very popular at the moment. Um, and they had one, he had one particular dog called Yofi who would sit in with him in his uh, psychoanalytical sessions with his uh, patients. And Freud would actually take a back seat in these, in the situations and ask the patient to almost talk through their problems or their issues or their dreams to their dog. Uh, and Yofi would almost act as the sort of very neutral interpreter, I guess, at that point. Um, and there, yeah, there's so many lovely little stories about Yofi, you know, apparently he was a really good timekeeper. So he would sort of yawn and walk to the door after, after the 50 minute session was up. So Freud would know, oh, okay, time's done. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? And I know that Sigmund Freud wasn't actually a dog lover uh, as a child. He didn't grow up with dogs. He was perhaps a bit deprived, but he became a, a passionate dog lover. And when his last Chow Chow moved to London with his great, you know, anticipated welcome to live in London, the dog, the Chow Chow actually got more publicity than he did, um, which is interesting. But his wife also was a massive dog lover. So they, they really, converted and his wife had a German shepherd you'll know called Wolf. Yeah absolutely I mean I, I find all these stories so interesting really because there's there's another uh, philosopher who you may have come across called Arthur Schopenhauer who by all accounts was a bit of a, a bit of a miserable git in, in lots of respects but he was <laughs> just absolutely obsessed with dogs and uh, again uh, like our illustration of Simone de Beauvoir's uh, boudoir uh, he was obsessed with poodles and he actually called all of them Atma which is a Hindu word that means soul. And uh, he thought of them as sort of elevated beings that almost transcended uh, human nature in a way. And uh, I, I, apart from naming all your dogs the same thing, 
which I think could maybe get confusing to other people. I think it just really highlights just how philosophers throughout time and history have really just loved our, our canine companions. Absolutely. The kind of thread that's running through philosopher's dogs could really be said to be the truth in that everything we've been learned, taught, how our worlds have been perhaps shaped through some of you know these great philosophers could, you see, have really all been directed through their love of their dog. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, anyone who's ever owned a dog or, you know, come into contact with a dog and petted one will almost certainly have, I don't know, encountered something about the way dogs tend to be that is just so spiritually lovely. And, you know, it's about kindness and goodness and and curiosity. Um, But we also almost, there's an innate human tendency to ask our dogs quite philosophical questions. You know, we're always asking, who's a good boy? Who's a good girl? Um, As if they know the answers. And I think it's possibly, you know, with a you know, slight caveat that this is being a little bit funny. Um, you know, it's quite possible that humans really do know that our dogs are actually tend to be quite philosophical themselves. I think through time we've um, sought the guidance of our dogs. I mean, you know, we've lived side by side for 30,000 years, you know, eaten the, the same food, cooked way back at the campfire or whatever. So I think epigenetically there's far more similarity between uh, dogs and people than, you know, that might meet meet the eye. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, this goes back really to the ancient Greeks in some ways. You know, you have one of the most famous philosophers is Diogenes the dog. You know, he was named the dog because he thought that people should sort of cast off our aspersions of sort of what was then modern civilization and, and sort of go back to our, our base roots, which is, you know, living in nature as, as we used to with, with our canine companions, you know, hunting uh, and uh, using them for protection and just uh, all around sort of almost a, um, what, what I'm suddenly seeking the word, you know, the, almost a symbiotic relationship with our, uh, with our doggy friends. Yeah, and no, you know, it's interesting. Now, what was that philosopher's name again, Sam? Uh, he was called Diogenes the dog. Diogenes the dog. Gosh, I've yeah. never heard of him. I'm going to check him out because what I'm thinking, you know, there lies almost an exact kind of, you know, message that we've been living through recently through lockdown and ongoing now with our new normal. You know, there was a massive surge, which I'm sure you read about in in, in the demand for puppies. You know, literally everybody wanted a dog because I think people that didn't have a dog saw how lucky dog owners were through lockdown. You were able to take them out, walk them, have exercise, enjoy it having a dog as company through through isolation and helping us, you know, reduce our stress levels and all of these proven scientific facts. You know, so maybe through lockdown, we've actually, in many respects, come to our senses and realise that actually, you know, in many ways, the only friend you'll ever have will be your dog. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's funny you say that because our neighbours came around just the other day to introduce their new puppy that they've got during lockdown. Um, which in fairness to them I think they've been on the waiting list for for this puppy for well over a year so it's not necessarily a lockdown dog yes Um, yes but absolutely you know I mean it's always nice to meet a puppy because they're the most adorable things in the world right but oh yes of course you know they're, they're saying you know it's immediately sort of broken up their days of just meetings and work phone calls and suddenly it's given them a focus it's you know it's brought them back to life in certain ways they're saying and I think that's true of anyone who's ever um, owned a dog you know that they 
they really focus you back on what's important, I think. Yes, and, and it's great to have the responsibility of looking after them and, and, and working through situations, because that's what we used to do back in the day, you know, when you would go out hunting with your dog, literally for survival to get, you know, rather than going to a supermarket, it was a day out hunting with your dog. So it's brought us back to sort of basics. And I think if any good comes out of all of this, hopefully it is for everyone to rethink what's important in their lives you know be a bit philosophical yeah absolutely and I think uh, one of the philosophers who I've really enjoyed working on is uh, Marcus Aurelius or for the purposes of the book Barcus Aurelius who's <laughs> uh, obviously one of the most famous stoical philosophers and you know his entire mantra was a dog's entire mantra is to just forget the things that are outside of our control and focus on the things that we can and I think you know actually in lots of ways that's what dogs teach us more than anything you know they they don't concern themselves with these higher crazy ideas about um concerns or existential dread you know they they focus very much on just taking the walk carrying on along the path that you're walking along um maybe you can get distracted by squirrels and things like that but outside of that you know just just focus on you know being good being well behaved and um yeah keeping keeping to heal i guess Yes, that, that, that phrase you used there, existential dread. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, that is, 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 is it, isn't it really? I mean, this is where I think we go wrong as humans, is we overthink things. I know I do. I'm a professional overthinker. And it's all that monkey chatter in your brain, isn't it? That it can get a bit overwhelming and a bit negative, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It's so, it's so hard to switch these things off. And I think um, to, to think of another philosopher there, you know, one of the most famous existentialists is probably Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre or Jean-Paul's Sartre. Of course. Um, and, you know, he, he famously had a student who came up to him in the middle of the Second World War when France was occupied by the Nazis. And his student had two choices, really. He said, uh, well, do I go and join the French resistance uh, or, and leave my mother alone, sort of to fend for herself in, in Paris, in a poor area of Paris? Or do I look after my mother? And do my duty as a good son, but don't don't join the, the resistance and sort of allow the occupation uh, of France to, to carry on. And Sartre just looked at him and said, the choice is yours. You know, and this is this almost unbearable choices that we all face day to day, you know, not knowing exactly which choice we should take, but knowing that we could take any one. You know, it almost is um, unbearable at times where you just don't know necessarily the right right one to take. Yeah, I agree, Sam. And it is, do you think this is just um, a human thing, you know, a human malignment, um, if you like this, shall I turn left? Shall I turn right? Or do you think dogs also have these decisions to make? You know, where has the rabbit gone? Has the rabbit gone left or has the rabbit gone right? You know, and whichever decision you take, it means that the path of your destiny, whether to find that rabbit or do the right thing, might be scuppered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, isn't that the case of, you know, when we talk about sort of puppy school, puppy training school and do- dog obedience, I guess, you know, um, you could almost say that there are dogs who do confront existential crises. You know, as you say, you throw, you throw a tennis ball, they have the option, do they come, come back and give it back to you so you can throw it again? Uh, or do they just keep the ball? And everyone's met that dog who's just like, well, the ball is mine now and I refuse to give it back, which, you know, it's, maybe the dog showing free will in enjoying or embracing its decisions to uh, take that choice. Uh, whereas other dogs would sort of say, no, the moral thing is always to return the ball because that's what we've been taught and that's how things, things work. But yeah, I mean, there, there's so many, so many different 
dogs with so many different personalities, aren't there? And I think it really, just as with philosophy, you know, there's not one single answer, otherwise we would have, would have got it by now, right? Yeah, I guess so. And I think we're far from having got it as um, a human condition. But the other thing that's interesting linking in with philosophy is, I don't know if you agree here, but um, I believe you can't lie to a dog because, you know, they can smell our moods, they can read our facial expressions that we don't even know that we're doing, you know, so I believe you can't lie to a dog. So could this be at the heart of a dog's philosophy that is basically the truth? Absolutely. I think the truth is so central to every dog, isn't it? You know, I think they feel guilt. We, we, we know that, you know, the way they, uh, you, if you come into, you know, they've done studies, haven't they, where you leave a dog alone in um, a room with a, with a cake and you say, just sit here and wait. And, you know, if a dog does do that, you come back and it's happy to see you, everything's fine. But if it eats the cake, as soon as you return to the room, it knows it's done something wrong and it will turn itself away from you, it will slink off into the corner. And I think dogs feel this far more acutely in a way than, than we do. You know, what, what is the truth? And, you know, in terms of, as humans, we're always sort of searching for an answer, aren't we? But I think for the dogs, we could, I mean, we could look no further than our dogs, really, because they seem to have cracked it. And the truth is just be truthful, I think. Yes, well, you're, you're obviously very on the page. So I get the impression here, Sam, that you are definitely a dog lover. Now, please tell us about the dog that has really inspired your journey to create philosopher's dogs. Oh, yeah. You've, I mean, you've nailed me there, really. So I've, I've grown up with dogs my entire life, you know, and I think um, I, I owe a lot to all of my canine companions at one stage or another in influencing this book. When I was born, uh, our family had a, a lovely border collie slash Labrador cross called Layla, who was just the, the kindest, most beautiful soul of a dog you could hope for. You know, there's pictures of me curled up in her basket with her. And, um, you know, in terms of some of the life lessons that I think she taught me, you know, she taught me that not all tennis balls need to be chased. You know, sometimes you can just go at your own pace. And then after, after Layla, we had Marnie, who was uh, a border terrier and uh, she actually had puppies. Uh, Whisper and Graham. I was allowed to name Graham, which is um, possibly why we ended up with a dog that sounds a little bit like your middle-aged uncle. Um, <laughs> Great name. I do love it when dogs are called human names, actually. It can be extremely accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there, there seems to be a bit more of a trend for it now. Like our current dog is a black lab called Reg, and he's just a very good boy. Um, and I think, um, yeah, as you say, when you, a name is so, so important to a dog. And in a way, I mean, maybe this is a case of human sort of perception or sort of placing our ideas onto what we perceive. But the name that we give a dog seems to almost influence its behavior in a way, you know. And Graham was almost like a 40-year-old man, you know. He didn't like doing things that were a bit strange or out of the ordinary. Whereas Marnie would be like, come on, guys, we're going to escape. Or we'd dig a hole into the fence and like run away and then come back with some rabbit or something. Uh, whereas Graham would stay the whole time looking very worried, sort of being like, oh, this isn't, this isn't right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's uh, such personality imbued in, in the names that we give our dogs. Yes, um, I agree, actually. Well, Prudence is my miniature bull terrier ne named so because it suits her because she is, you know, an old English breed. So needed a, a traditional kind of name. And, and it's got a bit of a rock and roll um, history as Prudence. But it's also for me to be prudent and learn from some mistakes, you know, that, you know, I did with Molly, her predecessor, and and hopefully, you know, make, make amends for them, really, and make her life better. Right, absolutely. And I mean, as, as dog owners, I guess that's one of the 
things we're always trying to do, isn't it? You know, we're trying to do better by our, our dogs in a way. And I think in a way, the reason I, I wanted to create this book with my sister is because, you know, we want to almost want to pay homage to the, to the dogs of, of all time, really, that have influenced people in whatever way. Um, and yeah, it's own for, yeah, I mean, obviously humans haven't technically stolen ideas from their dogs, but, you know, at the same time, it's, it's about paying tribute to them and recognising that actually we perhaps don't, we take them for granted sometimes when we shouldn't. Yes, exactly that. And to really value them, so they do have a, a really, you know, beyond legitimate place in our in our very beings, really, you know, and I think, that you, you know, the idea of philosophers proclaiming their ideas that they have done, you know, Freud, Karl Barks, all of them, Simone de Beauvoir, John Paul's such you know you know they were they were influenced by dogs in in the way they think and i i do think dog lovers on the whole are better people than non-dog lovers oh absolutely and so much better than cat people right can we say oh, that? oh no steady on steady on <laughs> I'm joking. I, know, I, mean, I, know. I do have a cat i and love him desperately actually he's called gremlin <laughs> oh gremlin fantastic name yeah and i have to say uh, once i i did actually i've been known to say you know in the past why well, have a cat when you can have a dog you know because cats are sure. actually in a way more tricky because you can't take them with you easily when you go away for the weekend or whatever it might be right. so but um they are almost transcendental cats there's something you know you can see how witches have been associated with black cats particularly but with right. cats rather than dogs there's something it's very sixth sense about them very yeah yes absolutely. i mean to be fair as a kid i did have a, a lovely ginger tom called samson moon who was uh, a bit of a troublemaker but also very lovely in his own way so i'm very facetious when i, I joke about cats but it's just I know, because, I know. <laughs> it's part because in the in the book we um, we obviously have to reference the ongoing feuds between uh, sort of cats and dogs I think it's um, one of the run longest running uh, sort of jokes or gags in in history isn't it this idea that they're completely antagonistic towards one another which is always odd because yeah they do seem to you know, dogs will bark at strange cats and things but if you ever have dogs and cats in the same household they get often get along like absolute house on fire don't they so Oh yes, more um, in the case of um, here, Gremlin is the boss and Prudence <laughs> backs down to, to Gremlin. Um, she went through a phase that whenever Gremlin came into the room, she would leave the room. She couldn't bear to be actually in his presence, which wow. sounds a bit grim. Yes, so much was his authority. And yeah, Mr. Binks, who is obviously the co-host of um, A Dog's Life, Binks and uh, Gremlin had a feud about five years ago. But then, um, yes, but they're patching up their, their disagreements. Their creative differences. They're creative. That's a very good way of putting it, actually. Sam, thank you. Yeah, so now the crowdfunding for Philosophers Dogs, where are we at with that? And, and when will actual copies be available? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've uh, crowdfunded the book through an award-winning publishing company called Unbound, who do things a little bit differently in that, unlike, say, your traditional publishing houses like Penguin, they haven't got the sort of upfront capital to sort of take a risk on a, on a book or a new idea or a new author. So they uh, crowdfund the, the funds to print and distribute the book in advance and then send out the copies to bookshops and of course all the supporters who have pledged in advance. So we've uh, been crowdfunding uh, for a little while now and we finished our, we reached our target I should say uh, a few months ago in the middle of lockdown. And uh, so yeah, we're at 102% and that's just fantastic news. It's going to means it's going to be an actual thing and we're going to have books in our hands and all of our wonderful supporters who I honestly cannot thank enough 
uh, we'll be getting them sometime in 2021. Uh, the aim is to get this out as a sort of a pre-Christmas uh, gift book. So uh, it should be on shelves from around September 2021. But obviously, there's a bit of a caveat there because COVID has completely scuppered distribution schedules and uh, the publishing world is still a bit reeling from that. So uh, there's no, no fixed date, but I would say sort of end of summer, autumn, uh, winter 2021. Oh, fantastic. Well, that sorted out everybody's Christmas presents for oh, Christmas exactly. 2021. <laughs> you see, I mean, perfect planning, you know, it's this, this philosophy that we're thinking ahead yeah, with a, a book that's not actually physically there yet, but is it really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it is an interesting process because, you know, you're asking people to invest in, in an idea as much as anything. And you, you, know, you can show them examples or excerpts and you can pick out some of the illustrations and say, you know, this is how we'd what, what will be in the book. But at the same time, you're asking people to take a bit of a leap of faith. Um, and during coronavirus lockdown, you know, during this such an unprecedented time, it's been incredibly challenging for people. It's been even more overwhelming, I think, to, to have had the support that we've had. You know, we've had Neil Gaiman, who obviously is you know, a very famous author, um, who's done, you know, um, American Gods and worked with Terry Pratchett and, and all that. You know, he's tweeted his uh, praise of our, our artwork, saying it's marvellous. Uh, we've had some other really fantastic um, supporters as well come in uh, from various places. So it's just just been overwhelming, really. Oh, it's brilliant news. And again, you know, perhaps the spirit also of lockdown is uh, reflected here that people, again, you know, want to join together, you know, work collaboratively, feel part of a community with real feelings and real integrity. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is that part, that opportunity to be part of something, you know, it's, it's so much more than just going and picking up a book that's been published by Penguin, you know, and being like, oh, that's very nice. But you're actually making something creative, a reality, I think. And obviously everyone gets their name in the back of a book. So you're a part of history uh, forever, really, you know, and uh, while the books will obviously be on bookshelves for however long that they are, they'll always be copies in, uh, you know, the British Library and other places. So, um, yeah, you're... The idea of being part of something that's a bit more permanent is quite appealing, I guess. And and wonderful for all of the philosophers, you know, they'll be looking down from on high and having a little giggle about it, I'm sure, as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so. I think, uh, you know, that's the that's the hardest part is trying to, to do something that describes their philosophy in a way through dogs, you know, so like René Descartes or uh, René Descartes, um, who obviously talks about, you know, what is, what is reality? How can we be sure something's real? Um, you know, that's quite good from a dog point of view because, you know, the, the whole, the, the joke that you do with a dog where you throw a tennis ball that isn't actually there and you watch as it runs after it and sort of looks at you quizzically like, but I thought that was real. I thought that was a real tennis ball. You know, it's a great example for illustrating that person's philosophy. Um, so it's about finding those sort of um, ways to do justice to the philosophical ideal, but while also doing justice to our canine companions. Yes, it's absolutely brilliant. Well, Sam, oh. I can't wait um, for 2021 just to get this book. Oh, shucks. Please come back and um, talk some more. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Anna. It's been an absolute delight and I would love to come back and talk to you guys again. It's been just fabulous. So thank you. That's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes. How clever are you? And I hope you all enjoyed it too. If you did, please subscribe to A Dog's Life with Anna Webb on your favourite podcast app. We're on all of them. Thank you also to Sam Dodson. And you can pre-order his book by going to the show notes of today's episode. 
My producer is Mike Hansen at Pod People Productions, and you can follow them at Pod People UK. For more about me, I'm on at Anna Webb Dogs. We'll be back in your feed next Sunday for another episode of A Dog's Life with me, Anna Webb. Bye for now. Pod people.